Hey there, everybody. Steve Say here for Talking Comics with a little disclaimer about this week's episode. After we were done recording our review for Wonder Woman 1984, we'd found that one of our files had become corrupted, resulting in some echoing and other undesirable effects. Rather than scrap the podcast completely, we called upon the awesome power of one Jessica Schaefer, who diligently edited around the worst of the glitches so that we could bring you this special review episode. Throughout the podcast, you will hear the occasional echo, but I'm happy to say that any audio mishaps are very brief, and that we're very happy to still bring you this unscheduled show. We hope you enjoy this special episode of the Talking Comics podcast, in which we review DC's latest superhero spectacle, Wonder Woman 1984. Meanwhile, back at the Hall of Justice, our mild-mannered podcasters were bombarded by gamma rays, bitten by radioactive bugs, mutated by toxic waste, irradiated with cosmic rays, born into a world that doesn't understand them. Hello, everybody, and welcome to yet another special episode of the Talking Comics Podcast. My name is Steve Say, and today I'm joined by Mr. Bob Ryer. Suffering Sappho. <laughs> Got that right. Aaron Amos. You just have to want it. And <laughs> Carolyn Coca. Hello. Hi. So, obviously... Today, we've gathered to talk about the latest feature film from Warner Brothers and DC Entertainment, Wonder Woman 1984. This movie is already a hot topic of debate, and that is exactly what we're going to do here today. We will be giving you our general impressions at the top of the discussion, and then we will call spoilers for anybody that hasn't seen the movie yet. If you've not seen the movie yet, definitely go and check it out, and then come back and listen to this podcast, or... If you've seen it or don't care, hang out with us for a little while because we're going to talk about the ins and outs of Wonder Woman 1984. I'll just say real quick, uh, directed by Patty Jenkins, story by Patty Jenkins and Jeff Johns with a screenplay by Patty Jenkins, Jeff Johns and Dave Callaham. So those are your people. Those are your helmers behind this movie. Who who among us would like to give their their impressions? Does anybody feel like they want to just jump right in? Sure, sure. why not? Why not? Oh, Aaron, go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. You're our, you're, you're our first timer. Please, Aaron, go right ahead. Oh, okay. Once again, I'm going to be violated. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I was actually very excited to see the movie. You know, I think it was just an opportunity to sort of see something escapist and something that was just in our wheelhouse. So, you know, I tuned in. I think I tuned in. I think it went on about 12, 15, 12 noon or something. And I think I turned it on about 1215. I think my first impression was, Jesus, this is a long movie. Um, and, but after that, I sort of, I began to sort of just hunker down and get into the movie. Um, and my first thoughts, I mean, just as a little bit of recap, you have Diana Prince. It's 70 years after the last movie, you know, she's clearly dealing with some things, you know, still, missing Steve and all that jazz. I don't know if we're in that spoiler point yet, but 
you know, I'm not going to spoil anything. I don't think, but you know, we, we find her, you know, sort of trying to deal with, you know, the, that loss still, um, you see a little bit of a throwbacks at certain points with a little, I guess, background things of what happened to the, you know, some of the people from the first movie, just to give you that sort of connection. But for the most part, this is her in a new era and a new world. And we're introduced to this world of, you know, it's a little bit different than what she's accustomed to greed. Um, I know I skipped over the whole beginning of the film with the, the Island stuff, but just wanted to give a background. So as I'm going through, you know, the movie, I, I, my first impression was, boy, this opening scene again is, is beautiful. You know, I loved the Island. I love I, I, I just love that Island setting to begin with. I love that, that sort of sisterhood, that bond, that, you know, all that stuff. I love seeing young Diana. Great. Um, then we go into the, you know, the mall scene. I love those mall scenes. So I say all that to say it gave me this really sort of cartoony, um, comic booky version of Wonder Woman that I wanted to see. Um, but then I realized it's a little long and it's taken a little bit of time to sort of really begin to keep a pace. Um, and then as I go through, I realize, all right, this movie is not perfect. It's got some flaws. It's got some good things. Um, I think overall, though, when I came out of it, there were some definite things that fell on my my issues list, but there were some things that I really enjoyed about it. And in the end, I think I didn't hate seeing it. Um, I didn't understand all the, you know, the vim and vigor that I saw on, online um, about some of the aspects of it. Um, I can easily point out the flaws that I thought were there, some parts that were troubling. But uh, in the end, I don't regret watching it. And I know that's not a high praise, but I think I had a good time, you know, with it sort of putting things in the context and putting things sort of into that whole, you know what, this this movie universe is not going to be the comic book universe. I'm going to have to just sort of let some things go um, and, and sort of accept that. Um, and then just ask myself, am I enjoying sort of the visual of what I'm seeing and the story overall? Yes. Again, there are some points that I sort of had trouble with. That I sort of still struggle with a little bit, but I don't think it completely took me out of the film. I don't think it completely um, gave me the, all right, this is a complete thumbs down. Now, I know I'm in the, I may be in the minority. I saw some things online and I saw some Rotten Tomato things, but um <laughs> that's just my, that's just my sort of, that, that's, that was my, I went with my gut after I watched the film. How do I really feel about what I just saw? Do I regret seeing it? Do I, you know, I didn't regret seeing it. I enjoyed it. Um, I wish there were other things that were done to sort of strengthen the character, but I think we'll, we'll probably get into that a little bit as we go through, but that's just my high level overview of things. <laughs> <laughs> Nicely done. Ah, uh, Carolyn. Hmm. Okay. Um, I guess to be as short as I could be, I would say I really liked the overall messaging that I think they were trying to get across about truth and compassion and love. Um, but I also found parts of it boring, convoluted, mm. racist, and sexist. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think we're all going to agree on some of those parts. Yeah. Um, I'll go next and then hopefully Bob can pick it up a little bit. (laughs) I, uh, I did not hate this movie. (laughs) I I was very disappointed by this movie. This was not the movie that I, I thought that we were getting. 
this is not the place that I either wanted Diana coming into this movie or or leaving it to be quite frank. I'll say these two I'll say these two positives super quick. I thought some of the aspects of Kristen Wiig and and Barbara's character there was more there than I'd anticipated or more there later as we got into her character and why she's behaving the way that she is. And the other positive that I'll say about it was that Pedro Pascal looked like he was having a blast. I, I really enjoyed watching that vein in his forehead and waiting for it to just pop right on camera because he was losing it throughout this movie. And there were, there were parts of that that I found to be very extreme and very entertaining. Uh, that said though, I agree with Carolyn wholeheartedly in that I was very, very bored throughout almost this entire movie. I did not gel with any of the emotional beats. It felt pretty hollow for me throughout the things that were supposed to be affecting for me or were supposed to draw tears or tug on the heartstrings or whatever. So much of it just felt like poor plotting and, and, just lazy workarounds for, for bigger payoffs that we could have had. Um, and I don't want to talk too much about the movie we could have had. Cause I know that that's not fair. I just, I'm very upset that I was very, very much looking forward to this. We watched wonder woman the day before to get pumped and to go in. And even though I only like two thirds of that movie and the, the problems that I have with it still exist, even after like five or six watches, this was so much worse. Bob, please save this and say something positive sure. about this movie. Look, I have a couple of issues, and I think we're all going to get to those on the same tact later. Mm-hmm. On the whole, I very much enjoyed this, and in particular, the third act, which was so much stronger than the equivalent in the first picture, and much more in character to a Wonder Woman I've been reading for all these many years now. I found some interesting characterizations from the antagonists, as well as our leads, uh, genuine consequences for those whose actions ran against what I thought were the film's themes about friendship, greed, selfishness. And, and I love that line, you know, greatness is not what you think. Those ideas paired with a very, very Wonder Woman-esque finale had me, I, I, it's me, I suppose, but much more forgiving of this film's flaws than the first ones. So, all right, so that's everybody. I guess, do we want to just move right into spoilers? Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Here's a question for the group. Why the 80s? Why, this movie is titled Wonder Woman 1984. Aside from about 10 minutes of, hey, it's the 80s, does it play at all into the rest of the plot for this movie? So that's interesting you brought that up because I was sort of asking that question about halfway through for, for a variety of reasons. And the, and the main reasons being, all right, this is going to really sound strange, but I'm looking at Gail Gadot's fashion, for example, and I'm looking at, well, I'm looking at everyone's fashion, for example, because, you know, usually when you have a, a period type movie that's supposed to be based in some, some particular time zone, you see some things that are, that speak specifically to that. Um, and that, when I'm looking at those things, I'm realizing there's nothing about any of this that any of this fashion that scream, screams 80s to me. And then that just sort of expanded in my head mm-hmm. to, is there anything else that I'm seeing that 
that screams 80s to me. I mean, not to compare things, but I remember we I remember where there was a conversation around when um Captain Marvel came out about her about the blockbusters and the you know, all of that stuff and the 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 t-shirts and the the ripped jeans and all that stuff. Um so I was kind of wondering to myself, other than Steve Trevor, you know, in, in a particular scene, I didn't quite know if there was a, a story-based reason for it being in the 80s. Um which was at one point I wondered, was this a particularly, was this based on when the story was told or was it something relevant to the, the story they wanted to tell that maybe mirrored the comic? I don't know if there was any reason. I just think it's a good reason to do it. If I can just interject for a second, I feel like they took a look at kind of stranger things and some of the way that things are trending and they realized that there's a lot of money. There's a lot of appeal in the eighties setting. So why not? do our movie in the eighties and try to tap into some of that. There felt to me to be in this movie, a lot of corporate strings being pulled in order to touch on certain things so that we can blow out as much money from this thing as humanly possible. I was really surprised by the lack of eighties music. Mm -hmm. I don't remember anything. And like, I, I don't know that it feels eighties, without at least a couple of like familiar tunes to get you into that time and, and that place. And I mean, the Hans Zimmer score was, I, I, I barely paid attention to it. If I'm being perfectly honest, I was so distracted by other things, but I just was really surprised by the lack of eighties after we kind of got over the Steve Trevor, you know, once again, out of his element, doesn't know what to do, doesn't know what a trash can is for some reason, because they didn't have trash cans back then. And I just was questioning constantly, why is this movie in the 80s and not just some, you know, why not now? Um, um, so, yeah. Um, go ahead. No, Bob, please go ahead. As a person who was an adult in the 80s in this group. Mm -hmm. It's the, to, as you say, why not today? It's because the me first 80s and the 2020s since 2016 are linked. Mm -hmm. The, the um, I don't care what happens to anybody else. It's about what happens to me. And that's what's important that has been in our uh, cultural zeitgeist over the last half a decade or so. It was a way to put that in a, in a context in a twilight zone sort of way, say, oh, this happened then, and we got to watch because here it is again. And the themes of the movie about greed and compassion and those things we've already discussed are then part of that greed is good, Gordon Gecko, Wall Street era. We mm -hmm. do, I, I think, to get to something, one of the things that does concern me, blending in the whole Middle East crisis where at that point Israel had annexed land and built their own walls and sort of thing. I think that's a minefield they probably should have avoided. Mm, just yeah, because that yeah. gets us into mm -hmm. a whole generic Arab villain from all those 80s movies. And that definitely, they, they could drop that fairly easily. That really, really concerned me. It's one of the things that really, really bugged me. But we're dealing in a situation, I saw with my friend Ed, who was saying, why do they have the present? Why does he want nuclear weapons? Well, during the 80s, and Carolyn can certainly correct me with this, until Ronald Reagan got religion from the TV movie The Day After and Jonathan Shell's Fate of the Earth, we had the largest buildup of our nuclear stockpile in our history. He was going to put nuclear missiles in space. It was Star Wars, which they mentioned during this movie. So to, to pull that stuff in, we can use the 80s as a metaphor for the 2000s and get a look at it from through a different lens, I think. 
Just just the opinion mm-hmm. of one old crank from the 80s. Just that's saying. a good point. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I no, agree a- with all that. I think that's exactly what they were trying to do. But I think that it's a have your cake and eat it too kind of situation when you set a movie in the past because some of your audience will see what you saw, Bob, and what probably the other three of us saw as well, which is they're trying to make comments about today, whether it's about a megalomaniacal con man (laughs) uh, with dyed hair, who's a TV personality, or whether it's about selfishness and greed and excess. Um, Okay, so so some people will see that and will find those themes really resonant. And other people who probably are the ones who need to see that connection most can can just be like, oh, people used to be like that. That's what we were like. Oh, good thing we're not crazy like that anymore. You know, so like, it's so I think that there are people who can go, oh, the 80s, you know, the fashion and oh, I guess they called Russia the Soviet Union then, you know, but when you but yes, if you lived through it. Um, so I know you were an adult, Bob, Aaron and I were teenagers. So, you know, I have very strong memories of the movie the day after being on TV and doing take shelter drills in school. Um, and, you know, living through that fear of nuclear Armageddon all the time. And maybe you're trying to mask it with big hair and, uh, big sweaters (laughs) over, over, over leggings, but it doesn't, you know, so those, can kind of lend themselves those those veneer things can lend themselves to some lightness but if if they had been able to stick to okay this is where the convoluted part comes in i think if they had made it a cold war movie okay fine you know she's going to save us from nuclear armageddon okay if they had made it just a movie about greed and excess and materialism okay fine but then the the un putting those two things together didn't quite work. And then adding this awful thing from Egypt, which I would like to go on about at length in a little, in a little bit. No, 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 not right now. In a little bit. When you mush all that together, I think the message really gets muddy. And then Patty Jenkins gave interviews where she said, this movie is about climate change. And I was like, what? Wow. Really? (laughs) Yes. Yeah, I just read it the other day. You know, it's about yeah, climate yeah, change and we have to change our ways because we're not and and I got nothing about climate change. I watched wow. it twice. So, um climate change? Yeah, <laughs> yeah Carolyn sent the interview. I watched it. I, I read a little bit of that interview as well and I was sort of and I was going through and I'm like um I don't know where I see that link here, but okay. <laughs> I guess was it political climate change? It had these little eighties indicators, but they felt like eighties indicators for people who weren't alive in the eighties, which I know is not fair because I think Patty Jenkins is probably around my age too, whatever. But it just felt not quite authentic to the time. And Steve, I totally agree with you about the music. It's not like they don't have the money. Right. And it's not like they don't own a, a portion of the catalog. Sticking yeah. one Frankie Goes to Hollywood song for two seconds at a party is not doing it. Give me the new order that you had in the tra- in the trailer yeah. 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 Um, yeah. that got me so excited to see it. You know, that really made me feel like, oh, they're really going to get it if they've got this in the trail. You know, so, yeah, there were other ways that they could have made it feel more authentically. 1984 specifically. I think what they really had was like 1980s-ness. But there wasn't so much specific to 1984. You know, I wonder, 
I wonder if they had just called it Wonder Woman 2 and just not really even focused on what year it was, if it would have had such an impact. You know what I mean? Um, obviously, we would know it was a, a prequel to the Justice League and all that stuff. But I wonder if they just said, you know, Wonder Woman 2 or Wonder Woman blah, 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 you know, or something like that, as opposed to actually calling out or focusing on it being in the 80s. I wonder if it would have had as... Is if it would have stuck out as much of as much of a th- sore thumb as it had. Hmm. Aaron, let me ask you a question. This might be jumping way ahead, but sure. uh, we did we did call spoilers. Mm-hmm. So you just mentioned that this is a prequel to Justice League, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. When you think back on the year this year, uh, as as devastating as that can be. And you think of all of the things that we've seen and all of the things that have gone wrong and 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 the world being in, in peril all over the place. Everybody is going to come out of 2020 being changed in some way, uh, emotionally, things of that nature. Considering how absolutely batshit things get toward the final acts of this movie, uh, given that there's wishes being granted left and right, where was any how does any of this play into justice league like wouldn't there be some kind of uh leftovers from that like i just i guess what i'm pointing at is like does dc is are they really planning their universe are they really thinking well into these other films that they have and how they tie in i don't think they are though i honestly the more i hear about it the more i hear people talk about it it seems as though they really are trying to break up their universe. Um, And then from that perspective, I don't necessarily know if the only thing that does relate from this movie to the Justice League movie is that continuing sort of sorrow, that sadness that Diana has over Steve. Nothing else really, nothing else really plays forward. Um, You know, I mean, obviously my first thought was, Hmm. They didn't really. She she didn't think to bring up the fact that she had Steve Trevor in the eighties, as opposed to you know all the way back whenever. But um, I, I I don't know if they are really trying to do that anymore. Honestly, I think they've sort of cut their losses with that and just said, you know what, we're just gonna. I do believe they're gonna go down this whole. Well, I don't think just planned. I think they're gonna salvage their this wreckage of of their universe by saying, oh, it was always meant to be the multiverse. Um, so I think that's kind of how they're going to deal with it, but I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't, there was really no connection. I don't think anyone even thought or even, mm. I um, it was. and did you say earlier that it's 70 years from the first Wonder Woman movie to this one? I was like, I'm sorry, not 70 years. 70 or 40. It was, it's, what is it like? No, it's world, that's world war one. So it's 1918. So it's 66 years. Oh yeah. 66 years. Yes, yes, yes. I have. My oh, well. okay. Well, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that. Okay, well, then that makes this even even a bigger question. How do you all feel about Diana's situation with with Steve and, and, and kind of the way that she's presented toward the end of this movie outside of the mall scene where she's become kind of this closed in retirement uh, character or, or, or hero? And she's kind of cold to a lot of people and has shut herself off in a lot of ways, uh, pining for pine for, for Chris pine, uh, a guy that she knew for a week and, and X amount of years later, she's, she's still in that place mentally and emotionally. Did that bother anybody else? Yes. 
I thought okay, Carolyn, please go ahead. <laughs> Well, I do want to say that I I think that Chris Pine and Gal Gadot have great chemistry. And I think that he is great in every scene that he's in. Um, they are great together. But yeah, um, Steve, definitely that she's been pining over him for almost 70 years where she has no friends. I mean, this I, I had a problem with this in the first movie, too. She has no circle of female friends. That's like a big Wonder Woman thing. Yeah. You know, it doesn't have to be someone named Capitellus or someone named Sandsmark, although they would have been logical for this movie. Um, but yeah, she should she should have some people around her because I did, thought she kind of learned a lesson about love in the first movie. Although, as I pointed out when we talked about that one, I was annoyed that she seems to have only learned that love mattered from Steve, not from her upbringing with the Amazons. Yeah. So maybe that's what we're supposed to think. You know, she learned about love from Steve and love is associated with Steve. She doesn't seem to be talking about going back to Themyscira. She doesn't seem to be sad about not being around any Amazons, but it's just, she's just so, she's just lonely and sad and closed and kind of cold. I mean, even when maybe an annoying guy or two is walking up to her, she's like, whatever, Carl, you know, I mean, this is not, it, it was not the person that I would would so, see. I mean, no, I, I, I could I could go on about the dynamic between her and Steve because as much as I liked their performances together, I had issues with she has to be taught. I'm just going to say that by, yeah, she, she has to be taught discussions about where yes. we're going to hold. Yeah, everything by him. Everything. She doesn't figure anything out. It just um, I and I loved that for Steve, but I certainly didn't like it for her. So there were two things, and I think you just sort of hit on one. And I was just like, as I was watching it, I literally said to myself, this is triggering me. So I, I know this is going to trigger Carol. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, I'm absolutely positive. Um, well, the first was, I do feel as though at times there were some inconsistencies in her personality. Because in the mall scene, for example, she seemed you know, the wink at the little girl and all that stuff. She seemed, I don't know, she seemed to glow. Um, But then I was really expecting the relationship between her and Barbara Minerva to deepen so that it had more of an emotional punch when things didn't work, when things went left. Totally, Um, yes. But but I felt like Mm -hmm. there was a mean girl thing almost. Yes. From from Gadot initially. um, Totally. That that I didn't quite understand. Mm -hmm. I was sort of waiting for that to sort of soften and for them to, I mean, I know they had that one scene, but I was kind of, my expectation was that Diana would just say, you know what, here, I'll be your friend and here, sister, blah, 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 and all that stuff. And it didn't happen. The other thing that I thought was really going to trigger Carolyn <laughs> was the the whole I'm willing to give up my powers to keep you here thing. And for him to be the one to say, no, you really – you you shouldn't do this. And just like you guys sort of alluded to, um, you, you know what you have to do. You, you shouldn't give up your powers for me. And I was sort of uh, – I, I was sitting there just like, oh, this isn't good. This is this, – this part right here is not good. Now – Granted, I think Gadot glows on screen. I think their I agree with you. I think their their chemistry is amazing. I think their chemistry is even stronger in this film than in the first film. But I still think 
the role between the two of them, the roles between the two of them was a little weird. Um, I kind of, I remember bringing this up during the first Wonder Woman that you have lived for, I don't know, centuries, millennia, you know, with women on this island and had learned things that normal man will never learn, um, man or woman will ever learn. But after a couple of days, you give it up to the first guy you, you, you see, and then this becomes a love of your life. And so I, I get that we're supposed to read into it the mythology of Steve and Wonder Woman, Steve and Diana. I get that. But I don't think that was serviced on film. And because of that, when she's willing to give up everything that she was has been for, for as long as she has lived, however long that is, I, I thought that was troubling a little bit. And I, I, it was a minor trigger for me, but I knew it was yeah. going to be. I was just like, yeah, Carolyn's going to – she's going to – Yeah, that, me, me too. Me too, because to me it's a lot more Robert Kaniger than Dr. Marston. Mm-hmm. Where she, uh, she's not just giving up – her own strength she's giving up being able to be strong to help people too yeah absolutely yeah and i mean i got the argument she was making i because I, I think we've all felt that way at times i got that argument like why do i i think it's an argument that i i, I don't know how many of my my friends that are parents have said this i've heard them say this honestly when do i have an opportunity for myself you know when do i get mm-hmm. to make a choice for myself i got that argument um i just don't know if it played well in this situation um, in the circumstances, but yeah, if this words, if this might've been set immediately after the first movie, a little different perhaps, but given as you, everyone's saying she has all these years in between to have created a circle of friends to gone back home, yeah. to do some other things. It would then make a whole lot more sense. But now with all these years passed, though, we've all, I'm sure pined for someone we shouldn't have. Yeah. 66 years is a long time. I think, though, for me, what what really threw me and what really disappointed me or what what started the the trajectory of my disappointment was coming into this movie and being reacquainted with a Diana that for nearly 70 years appears to have not regained her her personhood. Like, where where is Diana after Steve? You know, you can you can fall in love with somebody you can you can go through something traumatic with them and they can hold a special place in your heart but in that amount of time wonder woman diana isn't going to reach out to other people like has she been dormant for all these years not wonder no, womaning no i i here, here, let me just chime in here yeah. i i know what you're saying but here's a, a take on it for me based on what happens in the mall She's doing what she does and probably has been all these years in little bits and pieces, but trying to keep separate, to keep herself safe, perhaps even the Amazon safe. She's doing it discreetly. If you remember, as she starts that scene up, she flings her tiara and breaks all the cameras yeah. so no one can see. So it's a, so it's a mystery. Yeah. I think, and she she's enjoying herself immensely, even with the consequences going on. It seems like she does have some enjoyment of life in general and this extended life that she's living, I think where it comes back into play where she has that moment of thinking, I wish, and then it comes and the the reality of whatever this wish has now become overwhelms her reason with the grief and the pining. Should that happen? Probably not. She's still Wonder Woman. But in trying to give her a human characteristic, I think they made a, a mistake there. 
So I think also you have to take into account that that's a through line that goes through the Justice League. Remember, that was what Bruce called her out on in Justice League. What is? That she never, yeah. that she hid herself away. And she and because yeah. of that, she never really, because of Steve, she never really moved on with her life. She hid herself away. Remember, that's why she, she pretty much threw yeah. him across and, the room. Right. And him, him bat-splaining to her like that made me really mm-hmm. angry at the time. But there's, and, and here there's the Steve-splaining, right? Steve has mm-hmm. to tell her yes. he's not mm-hmm. really there. He's in someone else's body. And we'll talk about that poor roofied guy in a second. Hold on. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yes. Steve has to explain the concept of the monkey's paw. She's never heard of a monkey's paw. She's like a thousand years old. Um, Steve has to tell her, Steve has to tell her that people have to renounce their wish. Steve has to tell her at least three times Mm -hmm. that she has to renounce her own wish. Um, and Steve has to sacrifice himself again, you know, like a, like a damsel for her to see what to do. And Steve has to explain flight to her. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I the mean, monkey's paw thing, I I remember when I was watching it, I was thinking, I feel like she knows what he's saying, but she doesn't want to admit it. Okay. Okay. I, I don't I don't I'm just saying that's how I I'm not saying that's I'm not explaining that to you. I'm just no, saying no, that's no. what I was getting when I was watching it. Sort of like I feel like he they're they're saying things that she because of the way she was so shocked when she was reading the text and everything, my assumption was okay, she gets now all the the parameters of what's supposed to be happening now and everything that's going on. So she's like, I get it. I understand. I don't want to talk about it, but I get it. I don't understand. But now that you say it, I'm wondering now myself. Mm. I don't know. I, I I mean, long story short, this is Wonder Woman. There should be no mansplaining in the entire film. Yeah. Now, now we've done it twice. Mm-hmm. So I do have a note in here that I wanted to talk about how Steve comes back mm-hmm. into the story. And so, Carolyn, it sounded like you <laughs> are going to go into some of the things that I was going to bring up, uh, but you will probably do it far more. Uh, oh, no, far I'm, I'm just like, who is this guy? Um, does he know? He's does he know? Head man. Does he know what's going on? Are his friends and family worried about him? Um, I'm guessing he probably doesn't have any consent. Is he in there but pushed down and his body is being puppeted? Mm-hmm. Um, and Diana and Steve talk more than once about him as this guy. They're both clearly aware that this is a person that is not Steve. Yeah. And so, like, mm-hmm. does she not have any compassion for him? And when she's talking to him at the end, is she like, I remember that freckle on your butt. I mean, like, what is she thinking while she's <laughs> yeah. looking at him? She remembers the scarf. That's about it. And yes. she's just kind of smiling flirtatiously. Does she feel bad that she had sex with this man's body? I, that she let his life be taken over for a certain number of days? I don't know. I just, it's weird. I guess I, I realize it's better not to think about it too much. I found that to be a very bold and bizarre choice uh from a writing standpoint i just kept thinking to myself as i'm watching this and i'm I'm watching this guy having his body taken over and basically being puppeted around by the soul of steve trevor that they couldn't have with with a magic mm-hmm. a dream stone something that is magic you couldn't have just brought him back in some other way that you chose to do this possession thing and I I found the delivery of it with them swirling around them at the party and then they changed faces and suddenly it's Chris Pine. I found that transfer to be very confusing. Um, it's, a, it's an 80s thing, Steve. 
I am perfectly big, aware right, of that. Big, uh, big, vice versa, 17 again. They leaned into that and it didn't come off. No, but that's what I'm saying. I, and I'm, I've seen all of those movies. I know what this is. It just, there were a couple of big things in this movie that I don't think we transitioned into very well. And there were several points in the movie where I was kind of questioning, how did we get here? Another thing that I was questioning was how exactly Maxwell Lord's powers worked. But I mean, maybe we can get into that in a little bit. Uh, I just really wanted to hear Carolyn talk about Steve Trevor possessing this guy. And then we find him at the end of the movie Mm -hmm. and he's just all, you know, oh, isn't it a lovely day after the apocalypse? And I, yeah, I I just thought it was very strange. And also, where have I been for the last few days? I feel weird. Right. Right. Where have I been? Has anybody checked in on me? Why do I have these bruises? I just... It's yeah. I do have a question though. You just reminded me. So I'm just going to call him Reagan because I'm just assuming the president was Reagan, even though in the credits, they just called him POTUS. Um, why did the president say for a second, I felt like I was in a different time. I thought it was just that he wasn't there, but Maxwell Lord wanted him to be there. So he got wished there. Yeah, yeah, and didn't understand he why him from Camp yeah Camp David or somewhere else where he was holding out. He's like a different time though. I was just sort of like, hmm, okay. I was at first. I was like, are they playing on the Alzheimer's thing? I'm like, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I honestly was sort of like, that's rude. But no, I, I was kind of fig- trying to figure that out, and I was wondering if something was going to happen later that explained that to me. But okay. Hmm. I will say one. I was skipping ahead a little bit, even though we're jumping all over the place here. <sighs> One moment that I was genuinely very – I got really excited by and kind of sat up and on my couch was the invisible jet moment. Oh, of course. When she, she, she conjures that magic and she places her hand on the, on the jet and it goes invisible and you get that beautiful uh, fireworks sequence. I thought that was really, really cool. I was, I was very happy to see that. And there was even like – a little bit of a uh, nod to Batman at one point they go, or at least what I took to be a nod to Batman and that they go up through the clouds with the jet and you only see the silhouette of it. And it goes mm-hmm. against the moon and it gives you that, uh, that bit in the clouds. And I thought that was kind of cool, but uh, yeah, that was one of the moments in the movie where I was, I had a big smile on my face. I was like, they're doing it. They're doing the invisible jet. Oh my God. No, I'm I'm one thousand percent there for the jet. I am zero percent there for she got this from Zeus. Uh huh. Because yeah, yeah. this is Amazon uh, right. technology, and so what bugged me was just like, you know, she doesn't learn something about how to make things invisible from the Amazons. She doesn't learn about flight from the Amazons. She apparently still hasn't learned anything about love from the Amazons. Um. Or about truth, even. I understand the through line of the whole thing is supposed to be what she's told about truth from the beginning, but it feels more like she's learning it from Steve. And speaking of Amazons, I think their gold armor was not that well made because <laughs> even though it seemed to have worked for Asteria, uh, you know, Cheetah gets through it in about two seconds. Did anybody else feel like that armor was in the movie just to sell toys? Anyone? It's a throwback, it's a throwback to. George Perez, if we I know. go back to things like that. And uh, that whole sequence, though, I have to tell you, we're, 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 we are definitely 
swinging ahead. We'll, we'll go back to it. So I'll do it briefly. I really enjoyed how that played itself out. And so the idea that Diana plays defense for the longest time through that sequence, as opposed to what happened the last time around. And unless you want to, should we do this now or wait? No, this you're ready. Go ahead. Okay. It's, we have this wonderful sequence where it is, she's just playing defense, trying to, to take Barbara Minerva down with words and love and compassion. I know you're in there, Barbara. And, and when even, when all that fails, she first says, I'm so sorry. We then follow it up with all this Maxwell Lord stuff where all the stuff's hitting the fan. And it's about her trying to talk him down and trying to fill him with, with emotion and compassion, why he did what he did is, is wrong and his son and the rest of it. And that is one of the most Wonder Woman things I've, I've seen. seen. First, First movie, movie, this movie, movie Justice League, League, all the way back to Linda Carter. I found it really yep. special. Totally. Totally. I, and I, I, I really didn't mean to skip ahead to the armor. I was, I just felt like it was another thing where like an Amazon thing is not great. Yes. And that's why it bugged me. But yes, totally. I agree with everything you said. Much more actually, Wonder Woman. Oh, I'm sorry. No, right. I was just going to say much more the core of Wonder Woman. I was going to say, I actually appreciate more that that was the way that the big bad was was dealt mm-hmm. with rather than being able to punch his lights out and, you know, dropping him in a, yeah. in a, in a jail cell somewhere, et cetera, et cetera. Because I do think that, you know, however we meandered through the movie to get there, we did get to a point where I think in the end, she seemed more like Wonder Woman than mm-hmm. I think she was allowed to appear in the, the first movie. Um, and I think ultimately that's why I probably, you know, come out giving this more of a positive than a negative. Like I said, there, there's, there's so many things that, you know, I would have preferred not happen in the movie, but I think because they got to that point um, and we can see that and, and hopefully maybe that is something that is delve, you know, they delve into a little bit more in whatever future films they come up with that I felt like that was a positive. Um, I, I will say, You've heard me make this statement about the Spider-Man films. I don't know why we needed two villains. I don't know why we needed Maxwell Lord and Cheetah. I feel as though they could have created a single story that focused on one or the other um, and and been fine. I think it would have given them an opportunity to, for example, if it was Cheetah, it would have given them an opportunity to focus on all those Wonder Woman things, that compassion, um, that desire to sort of be her friend and to sort of, you know, create that bond and that sisterhood. It would have given up some real estate in the film to showing you who Wonder Woman is at the core, you know, as a human, as an Amazon, as, you know, that that avatar of truth and, you know, and love and all that stuff. Um, without having to zigzag back and forth to the you know storylines of the competing big bads, because I don't know, I don't know. I, I was a little, I will say, as much as I like Kristen Wiig, I, I really did like Kristen Wiig. I liked her portrayal of the two. Um, I was a little annoyed that she, in this instance, 
became a henchman. <laughs> I'm, the, I'm uh, glad you said that because oh, yeah. I wrote down yeah. that exact same thing that she, although I wrote henchwoman, but whatever, <laughs> but that henchwoman. that she basically became, because of the structure, she basically became a henchwoman and she deserves better than that. And you, and because of that, you didn't even really get a resolution to her story at all um, in the film. You had that final scene of her on the, the, the side of the rock, um, apparently transformed back. But what, what, what does that mean for her? I mean, maybe that's a cliffhanger for a future. I don't know. But I feel as though I don't know what this motivation is for movies, for superhero movies to have so many competing villains that you just is it the fan service that this allows them to jam it jam all that in there that muddies the storyline or something but i feel like you can just do one story and just do it it's well se- it's sequelitis we have to be bigger than the first time around and that is goes back to superman where we have three villains and lex luthor while we're at it and things start to get really crowded and sometimes a little overwhelming to, tr- to try to focus on as an audience, as, as you're both saying her, th- the character of Cheetah, which goes back to geez, Wonder Woman number six, right? Back in the 40s, mm-hmm. even though that's a different one, or a certain George Perez's version could carry her own movie and would, would give us somewhere else. But I think the need to tell a political story linked to today turned the movie into Maxwell Lord, also a very big bad. And he, I, I think he's served much better by this story than Barbara Ann Minerva. I feel like this was an opportunity. If played well, I, I truly believe this. If played well, this could have been the beginning of establishing Barbara Ann slash Cheetah as like a Joker level villain in the movies. You know, sort yeah. of like this is the formidable opponent of Wonder Woman who can legitimately hold her own and cause a threat, you know, you know, for example, in that mall scene, you'd never had any doubt that she was going to kick everyone's ass. You just never had yep. any doubt. But mm-hmm. it plays better. I think it creates more of a attention and an urgency if there is the possibility that Wonder Woman can get her ass kicked. It, it, it engages you more. And I think they had an opportunity to create that with Barbara Ann and slash Cheetah that they put in the back seat to the Maxwell mm-hmm. Lord stuff. Um, right. and, Though she, and, do, she does hand, she does hand Diana her tiara pretty heavily <laughs> in yeah. that one sequence. Um, here's the thing for me, as long as we're on the Barbara thing, I'm more than a bit off put that, but that her desires to be like Diana, strong, sexy, cool, special. Uh, this had leaned more into the special and strong aspects related more to her being a, a, renowned archaeologist in her field of work. I certainly felt better about that because it comes down into that. And my, uh, the people I saw it with my, my friend Dorma saying, well, she got really gussied up. Didn't she? We go, we go sort of right to that. And all right. I, it's not, it wasn't a complete mess. They do try to do some better things with it. They have their Michelle Pfeiffer moment with the, the uh, guy yeah. on the sidewalk yeah, yeah. twice, but it, it, it's just, I think if it had come from a better starting point, the rest of it would play better. And things you're talking about too, Aaron would definitely have pulled together into a stronger finale for it. Caroline, I'm sure this, this is one of the things that got to you. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I, I do want to say just to jump back for a second when you were, we were talking about the compassion and stuff at the end that, um, 
they were careful throughout to not have Diana kill anybody. No, like I, I watched that car chase scene pretty carefully and nobody seems to be dead there. And, uh, with the white house guards, you know, she seems to be stopping them from getting more hurt and stuff like that. She tells Steve not to use the sword because it's not their fault. So I don't want to, um, I don't want to downplay the importance of them capturing the core of the character in that way, even as I'm making these other criticisms, that is important, right? She's not Mm -hmm. killing people. She's not running around with a sword. She's not just punching first and asking questions later. But that doesn't mean we can't say this other stuff. So yeah, I the the, the Uh cheetah, the cheetah makeover glow up thing in increasingly tattered clothing and increasing eye makeup. I mean, it's just such a it's just such a trope. It's just such a trope that she's like she's awkward and dumpy, but of course she's secretly hot. She's super smart, but she really just wants male attention. Um, And when she wants when she makes that wish to be strong, sexy, cool, and special, like Diana, those are her exact words, is right pretty much after Diana has told her she's lonely. You know, she never goes out. I don't have the life you think I have, have, right? She doesn't have friends. Barbara, you don't know. We all have our struggles too. It's like if if Barbara Ann, you know, she's so Ms. Compassion herself that she gives a sandwich to the homeless guy, who of course is black, but we'll come back to that in a minute. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Don't open that door, Carol, because I'm going to walk in behind you. (laughs) The door door is open and I got lots of packages behind that door, but hold on. Oh, but she's but they're establishing they're establishing her as being compassionate as well, right? So this is the thing that she's gonna lose um when she gains the strength. Um but like you don't have to dress in increasingly ripped sexy stuff and be a cold bitch because you're getting more physically strong, right? Like those things don't have mm-hmm. to go together, but like they always go together in in Hollywood movies. Um, And and that's a real bummer. And there's also this thing about she falls for Max immediately, which is how he gets the stone. And then she kind of just keeps going, getting into that hench woman role, right? She said, doesn't she say something at some point? Like, you know, if you harm Max, I'll kill you or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 And even to wonder woman, she's like, you've always had everything while people like me have had nothing, but like, you have nothing. You're a smart person with a PhD and people seem great, to. Great position at the Smithsonian, right? And, the, and yeah. that lady that didn't recognize you, she only met you once last week. So, you know, chill. Now, granted, I, I, I need someone to help clarify a couple things for me, because was it the case that she only got that position because Maxwell Lord, you know, pulled some shenanigans to get her in there? I'm not sure. Do, I, I don't think so. I think he was then going to become a partner in the museum and fund her department. But I think she was already there hired by that yeah. lady. Cause I'm this is like the FBI wanted you to wanted her to look at something, something or other. I don't know. I was trying to figure out how that came about. But, but that I, was, that was after the jewelry store heist though. And Max had yeah, an art, yes. Max had the articles on his desk okay. that Steve and Diana found that said that whatever was at the jewelry store has now been taken to the Smithsonian. So that's, I yeah. think that's why he okay. shows up there. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that he offers, his his donation after the fact, like that was his in to get the tour to scope out where it might be. Yep, got it. Okay. Kind of like Trojan horsing himself in in there to find the stone. So then the other thing, just as I knew that one scene was going to trigger 
Carolyn. Oh, those two scenes were going to trigger. Well, I knew there were several things that were going to trigger Carolyn, but uh, we don't we don't have all day to go through the whole thing. Mm-hmm. But the, <laughs> I had a question for Bob. Okay. Um, because the most of what I know about Barbara M. Minerva is from you. Um, and her background and her story, you, and then what the, the Rucka run that we all loved, Mm -hmm. you know, recently, what was your thought about how she became Cheetah, you know, in this storyline? And was it even necessary for her to even be called Cheetah because of the way that she became Cheetah? Well, she isn't actually called the Cheetah at any point though. There are all those little bits and pieces of their Cheetah printed throw rugs on top of, uh, couches and, and whatever. Um, so I, I guess there's a dramatic dramatic foreshadowing for that, I suppose, is about it. Her, She's had a number of different origins and tweaks to it as writers have gone back and forth. It is generally, she is someone who wants more for whatever reason, feeling bad about where she is in life and so on. So it is part of that. It's again, as when you start adding all these extra characters, you start to link their origins together. Now, the Joker has to be the person who killed Batman's parents. No, it was fine the other way. Here, the same sort of way. Her story by itself would have been fine down in South America and looking for potions and elixirs and so on and so forth. Would have been just fine without bringing Max into it. It was a way to shoehorn it all together. I don't know that it helped matters any. I'd have been fine with... If we first meet Barbara Ann in... In a in a camp, digging up the thing, I'd have felt a lot better about it. Then it just shows up in some random jewelry store in a mall. I know <laughs> it's a front. For, it's a front for a a jewelry theft or artifact theft ring, but it would have been better if she had found it. Yeah, because I read a, a a backstory where I think one of her incarnations was she was a part of a cult, and she had to kill off her human side to become the cheetah and then there was you know a variety of different well she was tricked at one point by mm-hmm. one of the gods and I, so i was sort of like okay this had yeah, nothing that's the to more do recent one if i if i'm if i'm not uh conflating them all together in, in one mess or well, we could have gone back to priscilla rich and just some socialite who wears a cat suit <laughs> who who i seem to recall had some issues with jealousy yeah quite a few issues with jealousy back in her day as we it, that does show up here Yes. I'm not sure why they chose that. Again, because it plays into these sort of tropes of women competing and, uh, you know, the apex predator, which, by the way, is another Mean Girls, Mean Girls, the musical shout out for sure. Um, (laughs) You know, wanting to be the apex predator means that you can't be powerful without being cold and bitchy. And I mean, Diana even says at the end, right, you cannot have it all which I understand is meant to say, Max, you can't have literally everything because that's, but the way it comes off since she's lying on the floor crying is like, Oh, you can't be wonder woman and have love. (laughs) You can't be powerful without being cold and cutting yourself off. Um, Can't have a career and still be a woman in capital letters and quotes, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's all. But can I, it's the eighties. Maybe it's the eighties. Go ahead. Can I just, can I ask a lasso question though? So my, uh, there were a number of people, it is related to Cheetah though. There were a number of people online who were like, oh, this is stupid. You know, she just talks to Max Lord and he gives in. But my understanding of what was happening is that the lasso was on him. 
which uh-huh. meant that he could see the truth. So it wasn't just what she was saying. It was that he was seeing the truth of what was happening. Uh, right, so, right. Yeah. and that, and that kind of gets broadcast and that's how she kind of speaks through his ability to transmit. I know, I know, I know. Uh, yeah, and that's how, that's how the whole yeah. world is hearing her something like that. Okay. But there was a part in the white house where the lasso was wrapped around Barbara's arm and they're kind of standing there and talking for a second. So I thought, you know, is she like not seeing, does Wonder Woman have to give a command, like see the truth now? Cause the lasso is on you. I think if that person, her power level has dropped. All right. That's when she's wounded and getting hurt. And perhaps, <laughs> and, and at one point she actually loses her grip on the lasso, which struck me as she's lost her grip on the truth. Okay. Or a greater, or a greater truth. <laughs> So she now she can't control the lasso in the way she did because she doesn't believe it either. And, but, and when she says to she says to Wonder Woman at that moment, "What is it costing?" You know, Diana is saying, "What is it costing you, Barbara?" And she says back to her, "What is it costing you?" So at that point, or at an earlier point, are we just supposed to assume that she knows that Diana is Wonder Woman? Because her asking that question, "What is it costing you?" seems to imply that she knows that Diana has made a wish and ostensibly that she knows it's about Steve since Steve is there at the white house with wonder woman. And she's only yeah. seen Steve with Diana before that. And then look, Diana doesn't wear a mask. So maybe there, someone's finally getting rid of the trope of no one can recognize it because she has a tiara on or something. But also I just thought because of the whole chasing down the, 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 what's the guy, I can't remember the guy, the guy with the book. Frank? And them all being there and talking about. Oh, I'd, I'd like, like to. I'd a, like to talk about Frank too. Yeah. I just. Okay. I just kind of feel like that was a scene in which the veil. I just assumed that was a scene in which the veil was lifted, and I remember thinking to myself, "Oh, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, oh, okay, we just now know. We just don't care. Is it just kind of obvious now? So, but yeah, but I, I, I just assumed between that and between the consistency of seeing Steve there, that it was kind of a. Uh, assumed, but you know what? You ask a good question, but I don't know now. Well, yeah, I'm not really sure at what point we're supposed to assume that she knows. I thought maybe it was what you just said, and then I thought, well, she really seems to know at the White House, but I don't know. Yeah. So and the thing uh, is, what? no one really calls. Does anyone? Does anyone ever call her Wonder Woman in the film? Mm, no, no. I, don't so. I don't think so. I think you just call her Diana. Carolyn, who was the person's name that you Frank? Frank. That you balked at just now? Remind me of who that is? Oh, are we entering the racism section now? (laughs) Yes. Let's do it. (laughs) Okay. Um, Who is this guy? Well, his name is Frank Patel, but he's part Mayan, but he goes by the way Kristen Wiig says it is Baba G-Day, which is a Yoruban word from Nigeria. And also, like, maybe he's Rastafarian, too, because he's got dreadlocks and his place is a little smoky. You don't get, like, four diversity points for this guy. It's it's just not to me. This was it was just a a moment. You could have just cast someone Mayan and been done with it. Um, But to me, it was indicative of the sloppiness with which they were trying to not have everybody be white in the movie, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Were they, though? Were they really trying? No, because the DC I lived in didn't look like that. <laughs> Hello. 
the DC I live in now, you mean? Exactly, right? <laughs> DC is not that white. For those of you who are not familiar with the district, um, <laughs> the last I checked, it was minority white. Is that still correct, Aaron? It's still, we're teetering, but it's still correct. Yeah. Um, I mean, gentrification. I mean, in 84, please. Right, right. Stop it. In 84, you would have been hard pressed to see that many white people anywhere. Exactly. But yeah, I, I I wondered about that a little bit as well. That kind of was, okay, so as we're going to go into the, the I'm going to circle back to the homeless guy on the bench thing. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go for it. Let me explain to you in 2020, you cannot go five blocks without seeing 50 people of color. In 1984, I'm sorry, I'm just going to say it the way it is. Anyone who looked like me who was not getting a paycheck was, let me just be clear. Anyone who did not look like me who was not getting a paycheck was not coming into D.C., okay? Let me be clear. Y'all were not trying to come in and enjoy the city. Y'all were not trying to gentrify. Y'all were not coming to the fancy restaurants. Y'all were not, y'all were trying not to be killed. And y'all were staying out in Arlington. So when I'm seeing this scene on screen, I'm like, I'm so sorry, but no. All these downtown people shopping and going, no, never would have happened that way. You would have, you would have seen 85 to 90% black people in every one of those scenes if you're in DC proper. So that kind of, because the whole shift, honestly, I moved here in 96. The shift was just beginning towards gentrification then. There were, listen, it was considered like the crime capital and all these things. And, you know, it, there was so much emphasis placed on the minority, you know, you know, you know, population in the city and why it was, quote unquote, and don't don't trigger. I'm not, I don't want to trigger myself why it was considered, quote unquote, undesirable, et cetera, et cetera. Um, no, and, and just to add, I lived there, we didn't overlap sadly, but I lived there from 93 to 95. And where I worked, people were amazed when I told them I lived in the district. <laughs> they were like, mm-hmm. you, you don't live in Maryland or Virginia? I'm like, no, I live on P Street. And they're like, is that safe? So I mean, literally, they're standing in L'Enfant Plaza, that train station they were in. That's a tra- I worked above that train station. My building was above that train station. That's a real train station. When they were when she was putting him on the escalator, that was L'Enfant Plaza. I saw the sign. Didn't see a single minority in there that I could see. There's just no way. There's just no way. As I'm looking through the scene, I'm like, you come on. So that that kind of bug. So then the only people of color that I actually see are the absent-minded, you know, uh, administrator and the homeless people. I struggled with that. I really did struggle with that a little bit. So uh, this whole, yeah, you don't get minority yeah. points for that. No. And you do, you of course, have, well, have the, all- Sorry, go ahead, Bob. No, go, no, go, no, go, go, Cal. No, 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 you go. Which is the, the other people of color you get to see are the generic 80s Middle Eastern villains mm-hmm. who are there to be cannon mm-hmm. fodder and get thrown around and mm-hmm. crash their cars. Um, I have some, some tweets about... Um, some of the anti-Arab racism that uh, Sarah had sent over to the ladies of Valhalla group. And 
I thought I would just read some of these just to just to put some of that stuff into perspective a little bit. Um, so this comes from Ali Akbar, uh, Ahmed Ali Akbar. Uh, Wonder Woman 84 is that type of white feminist movie where a white man from Jim Crow era segregation is the best ma- is the best man humanity has ever known. But the Arab men are fantastic uh, fanatic bigots desiring a border wall and Latino men are wife beaters and megalomaniacs. So that was from Saturday. Uh, that statement was echoed by Twitter user, blah, blah, blah. All the evil things in the film, a literal border wall, domestic abuse are portrayed by actors of color that have zero substance in their character other than to be the bad guys, um, only to be saved by white saviorism. So there was definitely some uh, poor handling going around uh, throughout this film for a lot of uh, different people. And that stuff stood out to me, you know, here and there when it, when it was on screen. And I just don't know how those things still make it into movies. All right. So that me, are, oh, yeah, go ahead, please. No, no, no. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I thought you were. No, no, no. The floor is yours. Go ahead. Okay. So here's where I'm going to address that mm-hmm. because this is something that's just consistent across all media and it's just a reality and I'm sorry, but. It's, it just is what it is. The in, in all of these forms of media, the default for normal is white. That's just the way it is. So as a person of color, I am accustomed to assuming that I'm not going to see my story told on screen, but rather my story told on the sidelines or, or have to see my story through a person who is not of color. So it didn't shock me as much to see it. I think the reason why it's shocking more people now is because of where we live now in this in this in the in this in society, having all experienced 2020 and having all experienced the things that have changed. But had this I hate to say it, but had this movie come out two years ago, I don't know if we would have gotten all of that, you know, up front. Not saying everyone, don't get me wrong. I'm just saying I don't know if it would have been as front and center. So I'm glad that it is front and center now. But my situation coming up has always been that the default for normal in any form of media, television, you know, movies, plays, whatever, was white. And so everything, every person of color was going to have a specific role to play that mm-hmm. was either going to have to be storyline driven to push a point, whether it be nefarious or otherwise, or something like that. So that I kind of I'm not excusing it, but it didn't shock me as much as, you know, it still enrages me, but it didn't shock me as much as maybe some other people. Right. I, again, just my, my word for, for a majority of this movie is disappointing. And I think that that was one of the aspects of it that I found to be pretty glaring and, and hurt my enjoyment of the film. Um, Does anybody else have anything that they want to talk about specifically? I feel like we've gone through, a number of key plot points. What did we all? Wait, 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 wait. Think can of can the, I? The final act, the fight with. Be, before we talk about the final act, can I just say more about the Cairo part? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> all right. So you know, you have this all the the DC stuff where people of color are assistants or homeless or nameless or not present, and then you have sort of. Um, you have in the character of Maxwell Lord, you know, at the last minute we learn 
he had an abusive dad and got made fun of by kids for eating tamales and not speaking English. And now he's an evil grifter. And like, we should be afraid of Latino immigrants. And by the way, his name is Maxwell Lorenzano, which sounds Italian, but whatever. Latinos are abusive and, and poor and criminals. And people in the Middle East and North Africa are all about oil and automatic weapons. But okay, so not, but I just want to say that not only did it drive me nuts that the this had so much Hollywood, Middle Eastern, North African stereotype man and woman in it. But uh, <laughs> the the guy who played the Emir is an Egyptian actor. Um, but he when he announced that he was going to be in the movie, he took quite a bit of flack because of the person who stars in this movie, who is Gal Gadot, sure, sure. who... Mm-hmm. Was is not just sort of you know from Israel, but was a combat trainer in the Israeli Defense Forces, their army, and she has been publicly on Twitter, on Instagram, supportive of them and what can only be called their settler colonialism. And this is why Lebanon banned the first Wonder Woman movie from being shown. And if you want to talk about 1984, Israel invaded Lebanon like two years before that. But anyway. Yeah. So here's this this Egyptian actor who's playing this kind of stereotypical man who wants his ancestral lands returned and his money is from oil and he wants heathens to be kept out forever. And then you have this thing that his wishing this creates this wall. And so if you're not already like, okay, this is a little uncomfortable because Gal Gadot is Israeli and whatever, and you know she's going to come and save the Egyptians – so this grows this bar- border wall that cuts regular people off from water, which is like an Israeli-Palestinian thing. You know, Israelis have done this to Palestinians, but here it's the Arabs who are doing it, right? It's it's Egyptians who are doing it. So it's like displacing something that Israel has done and continues to do onto brown faces with yelling in Arabic, with brown men shooting automatic weapons. And then, this is my last thing, but I can't let this go. There are these kids playing soccer, right? And it's four kids playing soccer. And in real life, just a few years ago, four Palestinian children, they were aged, you know, nine and 10 and 11, four kids in Gaza on a beach playing soccer killed by Israeli shelling. And part of why that got so much coverage is because journalists from NBC News were playing soccer with them right before it happened. But in the movie, who saves these cute little Arabs from the missile? The Israeli white savior who was the combat trainer in the Israeli Defense Forces. So it's not just look at this generic scene, generic stuff in Cairo that's not very good. It's also really turning on its head what is oppressive there and to whom it's oppressive and making someone, frankly, who's very much part of an oppressive culture into the media savior. And it made me nuts. Sorry, that was a little okay. speechy, but no, I, it was no, just no, awesome. No, that was awesome. That was, was great to put to that said. all together. Yes. Considering the time period, if they had, I, I forget where I saw it. Someone mentioned this. I'm, I want to claim it as my own idea. What if we had made them Russian oligarchs? Yeah, that's with, totally what I would have done. problem. Right. And then you just have, okay, Soviet oil, Soviet nuclear weapons. It would have made so much sense. Does anyone have anything else that they want to bring up specifically before we we kind of round back toward the end of the movie? 
Uh, I know some people have talked, there's so many reviews around, uh, describing the editing as sort of being a little bit messy and so on. I think some of that is an attempt to replicate those the shortcut of 80s movies that went from one thing to another. The scene that got us to Frank seemed to really, he had a, it was a leap of faith to just go from where they went to where they at without a montage or something that they probably would have done today. Mm. But I, 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 there is a, a, there's a, not a consistency in tone, a growth in tone from when we open with this sort of Superman three slapstick sort of stuff going on that never degenerated into where that movie went to and then stayed there. This, uh, built through the consequences forming themselves to the point that we get to a darker movie at the end. I, I don't think that was as all over the map as some people are saying. I it may just be my opinion, but I looked at that as being a, a sort of slow and steady growth, little steps to get to where we had to go eventually from mm-hmm. a lighter, a lighter movie that did open with those pastel eighties colors to eventually getting us to something and thankfully didn't lead us to an orange and brown conclusion. Yeah, I I personally, I, I found like the movie didn't really get going until about an hour in. Uh, I had made some remarks to, to Bronwyn around like the 45 minute mark, kind of questioning where it was going, when it was going to pick up. But um, one of the things that I want to I talk about really quick before we go to the end is we got that great, sequence in the very beginning of the film with young Diana going through like the Amazonian uh, games, kind of the Amazon Quidditch and uh, pillar jumping and everything like that. This mm-hmm. really, you know, fun, fanciful, lighthearted scene uh, with a, you know, a good lesson to be taught and whatnot. But has she been back to Themyscira since she got onto the boat with Steve in that first film? I thought she wasn't allowed back. That's what well, I. She, I don't okay. think her mom says she's not allowed. I thought when she got on the boat, I think she. I think she says she won't come back. She may even say she can't come back. I don't know that she's banned forever. I thought the. I thought Themyscira was closed off to her when she leaves. Yeah, I thought so too. Yes. Yeah, okay. Um, but yeah. what I what I found to be strange, and this goes all the way back to when we were talking about the whole still uh, pining for, for Steve thing, is in walking around her, her apartment, her condo, whatever, wherever she's living, she has all of these, all this memorabilia to the, the last film and to her time with Steve and kind of this shrine on her, her dresser drawer, whatever that is. But there's no indication of her Amazonian heritage anywhere in in any of the rooms with the exception of her back office where that armor this like sacred relic of her people is being kept under a tarp yeah well she you have to remember if we go back to the first movie she left on that boat with Steve with a cape a sword and a shield mm-hmm. that's all she left with okay so unless she went back, she wouldn't have anything. Okay. I mean, she did say that she she searched for Asteria. Was that? Yeah. She yes. searched for Asteria. Mm-hmm. So she's been doing searches and I guess. Okay. No, 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 no. All right. That she's been doing searches and, and discovery and all that stuff. But I don't know if yeah. you make a point that there's nothing prominently displayed. I didn't think about it, but it's a good point. There's nothing prominently displayed. Yeah. It goes back to my, my complaint about some of the things not really being signposted that well. In, in the movie. And I think I just, my brain in trying to 
watch this movie critically while also trying to enjoy it. I think I might've missed a couple of things. I was really looking forward to this conversation because like always, there have been aspects of the movie that are now painted in a different light because of all of us talking. And I'm, I'm eager to watch it again with the conversation in mind and kind of, you know, um, maybe get more enjoyment out of it on a second watch than I did the first time. I have a really bad habit of once a movie kind of puts me in a place, it's very hard for me to dig my way out of it. And, and that was what happened with this, where once the dominoes started to fall, they kind of all just fell uh, for me with the, with the, with a couple of exceptions. Steve, that totally um, happened to me. What you just said that I, I did watch it a second time this morning and I liked yeah. it. I liked it more because I knew what to expect. So like when I was watching it the first time, I was disappointed like you, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm taking yeah. notes and I'm like getting annoyed and I'm disappointed in certain things, but watching it the second time and knowing where those parts were that annoyed me or disappointed me, I could kind of let them go a little bit and get more into the opening stuff that's got that Superman kind of feel to it. And I could let it go a little bit more with the Wonder Woman and Steve banter. Like it seemed cuter to me today than it did yesterday. So yeah, right. you, you might like it better the second time. Right. Like I know, I know that Bronwyn is cause she really wanted to be here for this conversation today. Um, but she's going to want to hear this, right? She's going to want to hear our conversation. So I'll probably play this for her and listen back to it one more time and keep everybody's, you know, points and opinions fresh in my mind for a second go and, you know, hopefully enjoy it more a second time. And, um, but anyway, um, let's go to kind of the, the finale with, uh, the fight with Barbara, uh, in, in particular, how did you all like, what'd you think of how she looked, how she moved, were you impressed by the ribbon dancing in the middle of their battle? <laughs> well, not the ribbon dancing. Was that a bit much? Tell us how you really feel, Steel. Steve. That was some Cirque du Soleil ass stuff. <laughs> Let me tell you. Um, Very I'll tell pretty you this. I again, I appreciated that Diana was was playing defense for the most part of this. Was not lashing out at Barbara Ann, but trying to pull her back from where she was. Uh-huh. I was also very appreciative. This was not a slug fest. This was not a fist fight. This was not a sword fight. This was not any of that, that if it got a little artsy fartsy, let's say in Cirque du Soleil, which is a perfect analogy. I was much happier with that than 20 minutes of Brown and orange Aries. Yeah. Oh, yes, absolutely. So if that, if, if, I know someone compared it to watching Wonder Woman in the in the uh, ver- uh, in a movie version of Cats two, but I don't oh, think no. it was quite quite no, quite that bad. bad. Right, I think the effects were really well done in trying to replicate a human feline cross with fur and the rest of it, and she was fierce and powerful, and I thought it played well for me anyway. I think the cheetah character had really great contact with. Uh, Diana and, and her armor and her, her shredding the armor as she's trying to, you know, turtle in and, pr- and protect herself, I thought was really cool. That moment where she she sticks both of her hands in and kind of peels it apart in the middle and you get that real close up of her eye. And they all yeah. of a sudden go from CGI cheetah to actual makeup and practical effects cheetah, I thought was really, really well done. I this is gonna be a super like technical Steve gripe, so you could just pay it no mind. 
I wish that they had upped the frames in terms of how she moved. I thought she moved very cool. I loved seeing her leap from kind of pylon to pylon in that area that they were fighting in. But when she's swiping and she's kicking and she's doing these things, it is, it's a bit slow visually. And we were watching like a 1080p super, it's, I've almost never seen a better looking movie on our television than when we watch this. Uh, but it is this, it is the smallest nitpick of nitpicks. That scene I thought was the, definitely the most exciting action sequence for me personally. I found a lot of the other action bits to be pretty forgettable. But um, that moment in particular, I thought was a lot of fun. What I do want to know, though, Bob, how did you feel about the way that she resolved the fight when they're in the water? Well, using the old electric shock therapy kind of thing. Yeah, just as a as a solution, I was I was curious to see how that well, landed again, for you. As opposed to putting her in the sleeper hold mm-hmm. or some physicality. At that point, would I, would I have been happier with the lasso working again, that she's reclaimed some of her power? But I think in this, the way they have the story at that point, she is still not completely up to speed, which is why she has the armor on. Mm-hmm. So if there's a way to do it without plunging a sword through her head, that was probably going to be it. Could If you had set the scene somewhere else, could you have done it at Arecibo or something in Puerto Rico? Could you have done something that way? But here we're left with the electric wires that that they're the scourge of every giant monster since Godzilla, right? You just sort of, here we go. We'll just shock them and it'll be okay. And maybe that is what works to bring Barbara back to us. Mm-hmm. Why is she? Do you she... think she knows that she'll survive it when yeah, she does it? Oh, why... she, yes. Why is she not dead though? Why is she not dead? That was my question. (laughs) Partially, at least. Because when she said, you know, I'm so sorry, and she like reaches for the wire, I'm like, "Um, you're going to kill her? Really? I just don't, I don't know how you can survive giant electric wire in the water with you. Uh, If she's, if she has somehow leached through the wish some of Wonder Woman's power, if Wonder Woman can survive it, and she might know she can survive it, then she has to assume Barbara can too. I'm extrapolating like mad, but that's my guess. No, I I do agree with you that I was glad it wasn't 20 minutes of muddy slugfest where people pick up increasingly large objects or throw people (laughs) increasingly far and they keep getting bloodier and bloodier. I'm so glad not to see that. Um, Having said that, I didn't – I think that – it's funny. I never thought I would hear myself say this, but maybe there was a little too much lasso. I love the lasso. It's like one of my favorite things about Wonder Woman. I loved the way it was used in the mall scene. I love the way it's used to get people to see truth. But I thought here with the swinging, it was it it made it it made it feel like there wasn't enough weight. Like they just kind of looked like okay. like Cirque du Soleil, like you were saying, Steve. Like they kind of just looked like <laughs> figures sort of tooling around and not so much. I don't know. It's like a West Side Story fight. <laughs> you know, like it's yeah, not. It, be- it it's became acrobatic. Yeah. Yeah. And that's okay. But I didn't feel the I, – I didn't feel any – and this was true of the, the car chase scene as well. I think there was some CGI and slow-mo stuff where I felt like yeah, I didn't – I didn't flying I, was bad. I did not feel the suspense. I didn't feel like – Wonder Woman was in peril, really, at any point. 
Um, and that's that, that can be okay, but there was something about, I don't know, something about the, the ribbon fighting that didn't feel fighty to me. I liked cheetah clawing through the armor, although, as I said, I would think Amazons would make better armor than that. <laughs> what did you think about the scene where she actually takes flight? Did you find that awkward or was yes. it satisfying for you? Awkward. I laughed my ass off during that scene. And I and I, I feel bad saying that because that's the kind of moment, especially, and this was one of the one of the few emotional beats that did get me um earlier in the movie when Steve Trevor is kind of again Trevor explaining flight to to Diana, but that he's he's setting her up to fly later in the movie. And there was, I have to admit, there was one point where I was like, oh, he, he talked about this earlier. And now she's, you know, she's feeling what he meant, blah, blah, blah. But I don't know. I I was getting a lot of texts from Joey about that scene. <laughs> I kind so, of. So here's what I, I don't understand about the consistent. Yeah. There's a continuity thing I have problems with in movies sometimes. Mm-hmm. So I remember at the end of Wonder Woman, I was Asking myself when she left off, I'm going to call it the bell tower. I don't know where she was when she when she left off when she heard the crime, heard the sirens or whatever, and she left off. And you know, I I was I assume that meant that she was flying to wherever she was going to go. Um, but I I assume that because well, when she was you know fighting Ares, she was levitating. So, so I'm like, okay, so they're 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 open to the whole idea of her fighting flying. But then we come to, you know, Justice League and there's no flying. There's no nothing. There's no I don't know. So I'm sort of like, where, where are we with this? Are we supposed to believe that this was a, a I don't know. And so I was also a little thrown because she seemed so unsteady and so uncertain of even having the ability to fly, having flown 70 years earlier you know, in battle. So well, sort of like, did she did she fly? in that airy scene or is he just levitating on the, the static charge of the electricity? And, Cause I always took the end of the movie as her leaping as if the Hulk used to in the old days. Yeah. That's how I took it too. Right. All I know is he was in the air floating. Don't forget <laughs> the Christ pose. Gotta, gotta mention the Christ pose. Gotta have one of those. <laughs> I mean, yeah. There was some in this movie too. A little bit. And, and maybe they should have given her the, the sandals, right? Carol. Oh, <laughs> Um, speaking of speaking of air, can someone explain to me why Max seems to have wind power at the end? Oh, <laughs> what was maybe, he maybe. standing on? Can somebody please explain I think this to that me? Was supposed to be that particle thing that allows him to touch everyone through the particles. Why his the yeah. reason why his powers worked? Yeah, it's okay. the Star Wars broadcast beam, yeah, whatever convoluted beam. thing they came up with. Yeah, yeah all it right. Was, it was broadcasting those particles that technically allowed him to touch everyone. But but why know. is there wind? I have no idea. <laughs> Somebody left the door open. Yeah, no. The the AC is on high. What are <laughs> yep. those days? They're drying the hallway out front because you know some people are still just continuing like life is is not falling apart all around them outside of the building, and uh, somebody's using one of those giant fans to dry. The uh, the hallway. All right. Look before we before we we wrap up a little bit here. Can somebody please break down Maxwell Lord's powers uh, to me and how the exchange works in term of terms of them wishing for something and then he can just say whatever it is he he's, wants from them. The he is absorbed. He's absor- Yeah. Well, he's absorbed the stone. 
Right. This crystal no longer exists. He's the crystal embodied. Yes. And so if people who touch the stone could get a wish, if they then touch him and make a wish, though everyone gets one, apparently. Yeah. He grants that wish, and he tries to direct those wishes into things that he wants. Right, but then Or at least give him some edge. Right, but then he'll immediately follow it up by, this is what I'm taking from you. So, And he just names things and they happen. That's the part that I don't understand. I get so all the other stuff. I always took it, I took it or perceived it to be the the reason why they kept talking about the monkey's paw. The monkey's paw is you give up, you get your wish, but you give up something that's valuable to you. And yeah, so, there's an unintended consequence, absolutely. Correct. So th- that's why Diana was losing her powers. That's why, you know, Cheetah was losing her humanity. That's why everyone was losing all the things. The the whole he being human form, you know, he could identify what those things were going to be that they were giving up. It was an exchange, basically. I will give you this wish, but then you have to give up this other thing, and I will take this other thing. So that's how I perceive it. That's how they explained the crystal. Yeah. All right. <laughs> That's just our from the the, the Frank. I like it. Yeah. Yep. That's how I. Yeah. It. No. I, I. I get it. I get it. I. I just again things that I think could have been better explained, in the throughout the movie. Um. All right. Does anybody else have anything that they want to bring to the table before we we wrap up with final thoughts? Sure. Here? There are a couple of little oddball, fun Easter egg sort of things. Simon Stag. Yeah. Old time DC megalomaniac, mad scientist, the guy who, why there's a metamorpho and so on and so forth. Uh, loved, as you were talking about, Aaron, some of the little things hanging around, old picture of old Etta Candy. Yeah, that was sweet. I love that. But now, Carol, I'm going to throw this one at you. Is that little girl that Diana winks at, is that Gail's? Peony McGill, Star Blossom. Yeah, I so I I made a note that I assumed that's who it was, which is yeah. why I paused on the credit screen at the end. And do you want to know whose name wasn't there? Gail Simone's. Yes, I did. I did notice that they did get Ramona Freighton in at least. Yes. So of the of the like eighteen people that they thank, two of them are women: Ramona Freighton and Nicola Scott, but not but not Gail Simone. Yeah. I felt confident that that was supposed to be little peony. Yeah. That was, that, that, that smiled a lot at that. Shall we talk about, of course, people should stay for the mid credit sequence. There isn't a post one, but there is a mid one that is pretty darn special. Sure. So spoil- big, big spoiler alert. That- oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Carolyn. Go for it. No, that, that's it. I've been ready for that for an hour. Go, Bob. Okay. <laughs> that there's this woman walking down the street, and you're thinking, okay, it, it's just it's just Gall again. And no, it's Linda Carter, who looks like she did 45 years ago, and this big smile and a wink. And, oh, I, I do this all the time. It's just a shift of gravity, shift of center of gravity. Wow. Didn't. Didn't expect that. Though my, my friend Ed was saying, I, a friend of mine said, like, the best thing in this movie is this Linda Carter scene, and she's not in it at all. I went, well, I'm sure there's still a chance. And there she was. Question. Now, Huge smile. Oh, go ahead, Aaron. I have a question as well. Did they dub her voice? Oh, I don't know. I don't think so. Linda Carter's voice. She sounded like she does on Supergirl, I would say. Yeah. I don't. That voice did not sound like Linda Carter to me at all. I was. I thought it was kind of strange. I was sort of like, 
is she lip syncing or something? It just didn't seem like Linda Carter's voice to me. Well, it could be ADR done after the fact, you know, some Foley stuff, but I, I thought it was her. Uh, my question is, do you think that this was just like a, a wink and a nod for fans or is this like some kind of multiverse thing that they're implying with this med credit sequence? I think it's probably going to be a multiverse thing. My opinion, I think it's probably going to be a multiverse thing. Um, I, I just feel as though they are really trying to go down that path. And I think they'll take every opportunity. I, I have no doubt that Linda Carter would probably be more than happy to come back and, and do other, you know, things. And it, I kind of assumed when, I don't know why, but I assume when they were talking about Asteria that gave that whole scene mm-hmm. that that was setting up for something. For yeah. for later, I, I would an Amazon's it. movie. We can go back into the Amazon's oh, history. Please. It's been the whole movie there. I would love it. I but. I could go for that. That would be great. And there is supposed to be an Amazon's movie, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe so. Rumors, I don't know. I don't absolutely. know if it's a movie or a series. Oh, I have to look it up. Find out. But um, yeah. Okay. So I think that's going to do it unless anyone has anything else that they want to say. Next time, pick a villain. <laughs> Just take a um, side. I, I want to say thoughts, that, that uh, escalators and subways were both invented in the 1800s. I said that. I said that to my friends, too. He doesn't know what an escalator is. The one in Macy's at Herald Square, the one from the 1905s or whatever, is still in the building. It still works. Mm. Uh, we may have some breaking news here, folks. I just got a work email. Wonder Woman 3 announced by Warner Brothers just two days after 1984's release. I wonder if Patty Jenkins will come back. Uh, let's see. Wonder Woman 3 is officially, this is coming from Screen Rant, by the way. Uh, I have not vetted this yet, so just take it for what it is. Uh, Wonder Woman 3 is officially happening with director Patty Jenkins and star Gal Gadot returning. Uh, Yeah, I, uh, Diana's second solo, blah, 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 blah. Um, Yeah, it's it's also in, it's also in Variety. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah. Warner Brothers officially announced Wonder Wonder Woman 3, two days of the same thing. Uh, Toby Emmerich said, as fans around the world continue to embrace Diana Prince, Driving the strong opening weekend performance of Wonder Woman 1984, we are excited to be able to continue her story with our real-life Wonder Woman, Gal, and Patty, uh, who will return to conclude the long-planned theatrical trilogy. Okay. Okay. Sounds like a plan. I was getting the impression that Patty Jenkins wasn't necessarily up for a third movie uh, as early as last week, but... You know, they're not really allowed to say one way or the other until things are officially announced anyway. But uh, I definitely came across one or two things where she was like, this movie almost didn't happen. I don't know that I'll be back for a third. And then, of course, we have this news today. I'm also seeing that Warner Brothers is, quote, fast tracking it. Yes, I'm looking at that right now. Uh Where are you looking on Variety? I'm looking through how many uh, outlets um, are tweeting headlines about it. I'm on The Verge right now. Here we go. Yeah, The Verge. There's variety here. Yeah. Uh, Real-time radio, folks. (laughs) (laughs) Fast-tracking. 
Mm. Well, she's got that Star Wars movie that she needs to do. I wonder if they're going to try to get that to get this to happen before that. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what Patty's schedule is. I was assuming that she was going to just jump onto the Star Wars thing in between, but perhaps not. I wonder if contracts are ending. Who knows? I don't know. I'm sure that there'll be more about this in the, in the coming days, uh, but it's happening. So that's cool. That is cool. I wonder if they're going to continue with this HBO max uh, theater rollout, if that's going to be their norm from here on out, I would be very curious to see what the subscription numbers are for HBO max after Christmas day. Yeah. I know Warner's is being sued by legendary. Isn't that right, Steve? Yep. Yep. Over Godzilla um, because, Hey, we put up $200 million. What did you do? And now you've taken our movie away from us. Yeah. They, um, uh, what was it? Oh, for Dune. It's for Dune that they're, well, it's really for both, but they are kind of at a stalemate right now. But the going theory is that HBO max is going to get Godzilla versus Kong, but Dune is going to be theatrical only. And the reason for that is that legendary, is worried that if they release it on HBO Max, that it will hurt the movie's franchise uh, potential because they they want it to be at least a two-film plan, and they think that if they lose that uh, box office dollar, that they're they're not going to be able to make up for that with a sequel. Okay. So um, right now, kind of the influx deal is for one to go to HBO Max and theaters and then want to stay strictly theatrical. Uh, yeah, Warner Brothers really sidelined uh, everybody and, and kind of surprised everybody with their announcement. Some studios didn't even know until we knew or they knew like an hour and a half before the wow. news dropped and were scrambling to get things done, to put together statements. Uh, and so what you got at the start of all of this stuff was a lot of heat for you know knee-jerk reactions from these studios to find out that all of a sudden they financed about 80 to 90 percent of a film that wasn't even going to make it to a theater yeah. because Warner Brothers decided to put it on their streaming service to sell subscriptions you know and there is something to be said for adapting to COVID times and for for making up for losses throughout the year and if that's the the avenue that they want that's the path they want to travel down. I mean, I'll tell you right now, I enjoyed watching Wonder Woman, regardless of how I felt about the movie, sitting on my couch in the basement. I made way too much popcorn last night. I got a popcorn maker for Christmas <laughs> and I put way too many kernels in because I didn't measure it correctly. And so we just had popcorn like bursting out of the microwave before I opened the door. It was amazing. But like, being able to pause it, being able to go and use the bathroom real quick, going able to refresh your drink. It was so nice. And I love the theater too. I just, for somebody like me, it was a very pleasant viewing experience uh, just in, you know, having the nice yeah. TV, having the nice file and, and just doing it that way. But uh, not giving your partner studios a heads up, and not working that out behind the scenes before you make your announcements was a really bad move on Warner Brothers. They pissed off a lot of people by doing that. Amen. So 
we'll see how that goes. Uh, Disney is starting to do things. Uh, Soul, which I'm going to be watching this afternoon, probably right after we wrap up, is now on Disney Plus, and that's actually streaming for free as opposed yeah. to the $30 charge for Milan that they had a couple of months back. And so, you know, places are starting to adapt to these things. It's just a shame that it's like upward of 15 to $17 to belong to each one of them. Um, and, you know, some people don't even have the ability to watch these things because of the, the release schedule. There are people, I believe, in the UK who have yet to see Wonder Woman because there's just the rollout plan is all over the place. So they're dodging spoilers on Twitter left and right. It's uh, it's no good. Yeah. Anyway, that's a bunch of industry stuff. Wonder Woman 3, it's happening. Uh, Wonder Woman 1984, mixed bag, but absolutely worth checking out. Some glowing moments for sure. And uh, some real uh, some real ugly ones too. <laughs> so do better. Do better. That's what I would say. Okay. Uh, can I read the stuff? Any final statements? Any anything you wanna No? No. Oh, I think we're I think we're pretty well covered. Anybody? Mm-mm. Yeah. Nope. All right. We're good. Well, I will say this. Uh, this is coming out, I believe, maybe Sunday, Monday, and uh, Wednesday, we have the final nominations for our best of awards. And then we'll be getting together over the weekend. I can't believe it's here already. I have so much more reading to do. Was it next Sunday we are doing our recording? Yeah. And or, is I, it, or is it next Tuesday? I believe it's Sunday because we, okay. we need Sarah. Okay. I, have, I do have some catching up to do then. I'll put it out there. If we want to put out an extra episode and give ourselves another week to read, I'm cool with that. But we okay. can talk about that. We'll talk about side. that off air. Yeah. I got yeah, a yeah. crap ton of reading to do. Um, yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. I'm still, uh, I'm at the tail end. I have two issues left of Justice League Dark. Just about to finish that up. Uh, that's been fun. That's been a bit of a roller coaster, but, it, but it's been fun. It's been fun. <laughs> You uh, to cry. Yeah, I did. I did. I, I wish that I was more into some of the DC stuff really throws me, but we'll talk about that on another show. We've reached the end of this very special episode for Wonder Woman 1984. As always, you can send us your comments or questions through our email podcast at talkingcomicbooks.com. We are also on Twitter at Talking Comics. We've also got talkingcomicbooks.com where you can find reviews and features from our fantastic contributors. If you like this podcast, be sure to check out ladiesofvalhalla.com where you can catch Sarah, Jess, and Bronwyn for the Ladies of Valhalla podcast. And also there is Jeremy Whitley's Progressively Horrified podcast, which if you checked out the feed on Christmas Day, we partnered with Progressively Horrified to drop a very special Christmas episode featuring Bob Ryer. It was a lot of fun. Jeremy's runs a really great show over there, so people should check it out. Not even and check out the ones I'm not on. They're much better. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, I've listened to every episode with the exception of Mayhem. I just haven't gotten there yet. But as I've said before, it is a wonderful show. Jeremy does run a very tight ship, and everybody that contributes to that show has just been wonderful, and I love it. And uh, I'm about. Halfway through your episode right now, uh-huh. Bob, and and really really enjoying it. Did you watch Black Christmas before, or are you waiting till after the show to watch? I've never seen any of the Black Christmas movies. Um, watch the new one. 
okay. The 2006 one is just a generic slasher movie. Okay. Bob Clark's original is a is a lovely piece of horror movie history for what it did, and it's worth seeing on that basis. But I think you'll get the most enjoyment out of the new one with Imogen Poots. I do like Imogen Poots. You're going to love this a, movie then. It's, she's a great actress. It's got some heavy, as you've heard, it's got some heavy heavy lifting to do in terms of plot, characters, themes, events. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's, I think it's really well done. Yeah, their uh, their podcast is is costing me some money. <laughs> I've, I've bought a few movies uh, because of because of their podcast. I just picked up that Purge movie they talked about, the first Purge. Nice. Uh, I bought the Mummy trilogy a few weeks ago because of that podcast. Uh, I've yet to pick up Mayhem, but I you probably will. will. You will after I haven't listened to that episode yet, too. I just started the other day, but I, knowing that movie and who made it and how and what it's what it's about again, uh, Samra Weaving. And, yes, uh, I am yeah, a big fan. Yeah, very very it. big fan. Yeah, yeah, she's great. Um, have you seen Guns Akimbo, Bob? No, should I? Yes, yes. apparently because you're mentioning. Yes, it. okay. Yes, you should absolutely see Guns Akimbo. Okay, uh, she is in that, and so is Daniel Radcliffe, who I have my. My liking of him has only increased throughout 2020. I've seen a few of his movies now, including Swiss Army Man, which is one of the weirdest movies I've ever seen in my life. But he's wonderful. And Guns Akimbo is totally worth your time. All right. So, Bob, uh, if our listeners want to get in touch with you, what's your your email? Where can they find you? Old-fashioned email. Bob Ryer at TalkingComicBooks.com. And Aaron? At Aaron J. Amos. Carolyn. Um, email coca c at oldwestbury.edu. And while we're talking to Carolyn, I just want to say thank you for joining us oh, this week. Thank you so much for asking. Always happy to talk to you guys and always happy to talk about Wonder Woman. Oh, yeah. Nice. So let's see. Joey is at Joey Braccino. I am at dead underscore anchoress. Jessica's at Jarska. Why do I do this to myself? Jessica's at Jarska for all the things. Sarah is at Geek Country Lady, and Bronwyn is at Shiny Baby B. So for Bob. Happy New Year. For Aaron. I want a Detective Chimp movie. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. With Andy Circus doing mocap. Uh, for Carolyn. Uh, truth. And Justice. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to tune in for the best of round three. And then we'll be back with our award show and more guests in the new year. And we're just going to keep on going, marching towards that 500th episode and our uh, ninth, I guess, into our 10th year uh, next year at Talking Comics. My God. All right, everybody. Be good to one another. We'll catch you next time. Till then, to be continued.